uh, Mark chapter 3 is where we're going to start. And just to remember, we've been uh, away from uh, the book of Mark for a few weeks because of uh, Palm Sunday, then Easter, and then last week we had Will here sharing. And so this week we pick back up in the series of Mark. So I just want to remind us of the goal of the series and the simple takeaway, um, but powerful takeaway is this, is that for every one of us to fall deeper in love with the person of Jesus, the Savior servant Jesus. And from this closeness, our desire will be to follow him more intimately, obey him more earnestly, and share him more passionately. In our culture, uh, we are faced with, in our society, uh, in the world we live in, we are faced with this aggressive evil. And it seems like there's no way around it, that we are going to be faced with it. And that, at the same time, we're also living in a culture, a church culture, where there is apathy within our faith and in our churches. And so Mark is a study that can help give us courage and point us to Jesus to stand against both of those things. So we finished the first two chapters, and if you remember, the first theme uh, that we looked at for chapters 1 and 2 is make way for Jesus and his ministry. Jesus is coming onto the scene. Now in, in chapter 3, we start a new theme, chapters 3 and 4, where Jesus calls his disciples for the gospel. Last time we were in Mark, we looked at Mark chapter 2, verses 23 through 28, and we tried to discern three different things from this passage. One is we wanted to understand what the Sabbath was and define the Sabbath. The word Sabbath in the scripture is Shabbat, which means to, to cease, to stop, to cease striving. It has been and is a day on which a person was to leave their secular labors of employment and keep a day holy unto the Lord. The Sabbath was a day set apart, not for us, but for the Lord. And it was rooted in God resting on the seventh day. The, the Exodus, 20, 20, Exodus 20 has the Ten Commandments. And if you remember, the fourth commandment starts with the word remember. Remember what? The Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. This word is emphatic that the Jewish people were not to grow lax in their observance of this command. And then Jesus comes on the scene, and we look at Jesus and the Sabbath. Apart from Jesus being the Messiah, the anointed one, the Savior of the world, apart from that, the biggest subject that the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin had a problem with was Jesus and what he was doing on the Sabbath. Jesus set himself squarely against the Pharisees and the rabbis and their teaching as contrary to the intent of the Sabbath designed by God. Because if you remember, the Pharisees were only concerned with this outward appearance of the Sabbath and keeping up all the rules and restrictions. But Jesus was concerned with the heart. Because Jesus knows, and so do we, that everything can look right on the outside, but really messed up on the inside. And so Jesus knew the Sabbath was about the heart, not the outward rules and appearance. Jesus says in Mark 22, verses 27 and 28, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. In other words, Jesus says the Sabbath is a gift for you to have perspective and to gain two primary things on that day, rest and worship. Rest and and worship. The Lord's day is about the Lord resting and worshiping 
him. So this morning we continue this thought and attitude in chapter 3, where we see Jesus in the story with a man with a withered hand, and that he was healed on the Sabbath. So before we go any further, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity you give us to come, to sing, to have fellowship, to be reminded of your goodness and your grace, your mercy, your compassion, your gentleness. God, I pray this morning that as we lift Jesus up, that all people line would be drawn to you. And we trust you with that. Would you take a minute and pray for the person in front of you or behind you that they would hear from the Lord this morning. Jesus, we freely give ourselves to you this morning. Speak to us, we pray, by your spirit. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Mark chapter 3. We're going to read the first three, first six verses of Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. If you don't have your Bibles, the word should be on the screen. Verse 1 says, He, meaning Jesus, entered again into a synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. They were watching him. To see if he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. He said to the man with the withered hand, Get up and come forward. And he said to them, Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. After looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out immediately and began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. This passage, this story, is also found in Matthew 12 and in Luke's chapter 6. This is the last conflict between the Pharisees and Jesus around this part of the gospel and in regards to the Sabbath. Remember, the Sabbath had strict rules. You couldn't violate these. Some were even punishable by death. And I want you to notice something, uh, just as a side note, in this first chapter, verse, verse, is this word again, that Jesus comes back to the synagogue again. Mark opens with Jesus in the synagogue, and he is now back in the synagogue. The specific location is not given, but the detail that he is there again indicates that he's returned not only to Capernaum, but to a synagogue. And for him to go back to a synagogue was a pretty big deal. Remember in Mark chapter 1 when Jesus was in the synagogue and an evil-spirited man came in and he threw out the evil spirit and healed the man? The Pharisees didn't like that either. It was the act of a man who refused, Jesus was, is the act of a man who refused to see and seek safety who was determined to look at a dangerous situation in the face for the glory of God and for the benefit of his people. Now, 
in the synagogue, there was a commission or job of the Pharisees and particularly the Sanhedrin. If you've ever been to Israel, in the, ten- in the synagogues, they kind of replicated the synagogue as the temple. And there was an area for the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the high priest. There was, there was a section for them. There's an area for the scrolls. Uh, there's an area for the people. There's a section for women. And so the Sanhedrin and Pharisees are watching Jesus. The Sanhedrin, just as a side note to give you an understanding, the Sanhedrin were made up of 71 men who could enact verdict on anybody that they wanted to and do anything that they wanted to to people except execute people because that was left to the Romans. In other words, these were really powerful people that were watching Jesus. It gives you a sense of this word again, that Jesus came back to the synagogue again with these folks in, in the synagogue. Now these people, it says, that the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, and all the people that were there were watching Jesus. Now, does it sound like they came to the synagogue for the right reason? The last thing they were there to do was to worship and learn. In fact, they were really there to scrutinize Jesus' every action, and we'll see that a little bit more in just a little bit. Now, just as a side note, if you remember in John chapter 3, Nicodemus. Nicodemus has been described and labeled as a Pharisee. And it says that Nicodemus came to Jesus when? At night. To hide. Because of the power that he had as a Pharisee, they didn't want, he didn't want to associate with Jesus. So the Pharisees are there. Probably some Sanhedrin are there. And it was the Sabbath day. And all work was be, to be for, forbidden, and to heal was to work. Now, the Jewish law was definite and detailed about even healing. Uh, Listen to some of this. Medical attention could be only given if life was in danger. Here's some examples. A woman in childbirth might be helped on the Sabbath. (laughs) Might, Might be. An infection of the throat might be treated. Now, this is a really interesting one. If a wall fell on anyone... Enough might be cleared away to see whether he was dead or alive. And if he was alive, he might be helped. If he was dead, the body was left there until the next day. A fracture could not be attended to. Cold water could not be poured on a sprained hand or foot. A cut finger might be bandaged with a plain bandage, but not with ointment. That is to say, the most an injury could be kept from getting worse, but it not be made better. That would be considered work. So you get this picture that the Sabbath, this Orthodox Jewish uh, Jewish attitude towards the Sabbath, was completely rigid and unbending. And so the story will bring out the resentment that they have towards Jesus, this formalization and righteousness and hard-heartedness of the religious leaders of the Jews. So this morning, by the way, that was all part of the introduction. Now we're going to get into the points. The first thing I want to look at is verse 1 says, uh, there was a man with a withered hand. He entered again into the synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. This man is nameless. He's wordless. He doesn't say anything. Just a guy that had 
come to the synagogue that day, probably as he always did. We don't know whether or not he had heard that Jesus was going to be there or not. Three of the four Gospels make mention of this miracle, and all of them use the same word to describe the man's hand as withered. This word withered is a, a not a favorable term. In fact, uh, commentators call it an ugly word. That his hand was withered. The theology of the day laid blame on this man, dubbed him as a sinner, not worthy of being made whole. Technically, this word withered means to be shrunken or withered and therefore immobile because of disease, withered, shrunken, or paralyzed. The Greek word means that he had not been born that way, but that some illness had taken the strength from him. That which once held life, but now the life is gone. It's withered away. Now, just as a, a visual... can't see it on that side that's <clears throat> the praise team were about to throw these out this morning but i told them i needed it for, <laughs> for an analogy <clears throat> withered notice the description that which was once strong is now fragile and weak that which was once beautiful is now twisted and deformed not only is this, uh, does Mark say his hand was withered, but Luke gives another description that, that was, it was his right hand. How many of you here are right-handed? That's the right hand to have up. The right hand may be regarded as the best bodily sign of our active and energetic nature. It's our hope not only to think and feel, but to will and to do. This man's hand was designed to be functional and effective, but now it's rendered powerless. It was meant to be a blessing and provide, but now it has become a burden or a handicap. Commentaries show that there's many ways that this man's hand could have been made to wither. It could have been the result of a battle wound. It could have been the result of atrophy or lack of use. It could have been the result of disease beyond his control. I've talked to some people who've, who've had uh, arthritis or carpal tunnel. And so some of us can physically relate to what a withered hand. You, it's hard to open things. Strength is gone. But there's a greater thing that Jesus sees other than just his hand. One of the, the great things about this story is that Jesus never asks how he got that way. Now what's really important to note is that this man's life was not in danger. He could have come back the next day and his hand would have been withered the same as it was the day before. So his hand's not causing any life-threatening problems. And I bring that up because of the Sabbath. The condition of this man in the synagogue is a symbol of the state and need of man. Sure, he was a man with a withered hand, but the hand is the symbol of a man's useful nature. As I was studying this week, many commentaries, many scholars over and over began bringing up this same point. Is that the withering of the hand is symbolic to the effect of sin 
upon our usefulness with Christ. As this man was rendered incapable of pursuing a trade in life, so the victim of sin is crippled for godly service as both weakened and incapacitated for Christian work. One author said it this way, The withering of muscle, the paralysis of nerve, is no more disastrous to the body effort than the impairing and debilitating power of sin is destructive to the wholly acceptable service unto God. Sin withers that which was strong and powerful and useful. Sin withers it incapable of pursuing Christian service to the Lord. There's a second thing. The apparent hopelessness of this man's case is a sign of the sinner's hopeless state. This man obviously could not heal himself, or he would have done so. So this man's withered hand shows his dependency on someone greater than himself. Now let me just ask you to think with me for a second. Maybe it's a stretch. Maybe it's right in front of your face. How many of us can identify with this withered plant or withered hand? Maybe we have withered hands of prayer, compassion, or service. That which was once strong is now weak and fragile. Maybe there's other areas of our life that has become withered. Our relationship with Jesus, with our family, with our friends. Maybe it's time spent with the Lord. Maybe our time in God's Word has withered. Maybe areas of reaching out to other people or telling other people about Jesus has withered. How about maybe our care and concern and compassion for other people? It's just kind of withered. It was strong. It was viable. And now it's just kind of uh, weak and fragile. The point is we can relate, I think, in a lot of ways to areas of our life that look like this. And maybe it's sin. Maybe it's the result of somebody else's sin. Maybe it's just the result of grief and sadness and loss. But I'm convinced that we can relate to areas of our life that we feel and look in some ways like this. And Jesus is going to deal with this man with the withered hand, with compassion and clarity, and I hope with us too. In verse 3, Jesus responds and restores. He says this, He said to the man with the withered hand, Get up and come forward. And he said to them, Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. After looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out in the hand. Was restored. Now, this scene is incredible. You have to put yourself in this story. Here's a guy that came to the synagogue, nameless and wordless and silent. And Jesus says, Come forward. Now, what if I asked you this morning? I looked at you and said, Hey, you, you come forward and let's display your witheredness. 
let's, let's just show everybody the things that maybe you're not really wanting everybody to see. Maybe that you're embarrassed about. Maybe areas that you know people won't accept. Maybe areas that you know that you want to keep hidden. Jesus says, come forward. And then, after you're up here, Jesus is standing with you, but he starts talking to everybody else. Now, don't forget who he's standing kind of close to. The Sanhedrin. The Pharisees. It's a really incredible scene. The Greek indicates that Jesus is asking this man to get up from where he is sitting and come forward to the middle of the synagogue. The Lord told him to step forward. And now the whole atmosphere of the synagogue is charged with expectancy. What is going to happen next? So Jesus says... Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life, or to kill it? Now, I am sure you could have heard a pin drop in the synagogue. It says they kept silent. Now, notice the irony here. The Pharisees thought it was wrong for him to perform a miracle of healing on the Sabbath, but not wrong for them to plan the destruction of Jesus on the Sabbath. It's amazing to me that the Pharisees are able to point out what is wrong with Jesus or someone else, but miss the same thing that's wrong in themselves. Let me say that again. The Pharisees are able to point out what's wrong in somebody else, but not see it in themselves. How many of you growing up ever heard that analogy where you point a finger? Like you point one finger and three are pointing back at you? Sadly, I can sometimes relate to the Pharisees in this way. The question that has to be in the synagogue, would Jesus heal on the Sabbath? If he did, the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin would have a case against Jesus. Or so they thought. But for Jesus not to heal the man would have been a violation of God's purpose for the Sabbath, and that is to bring healing and blessing to people. So there's obviously a disconnect with Jesus. The Pharisees were looking through this lens of judgment and an I'm going to get you with this law and rules and regulations. And Jesus was looking at the scene and looking at the hearts and the motives of people. And verse 5 is a pretty strong verse. Because it says, The condition of the Pharisees and Sanhedrin and the people that were there watching Jesus... It said the condition of their attitude made him angry. Verse 5 says, after looking around at them with anger. I, I, I'm just, I just have to imagine that it's really quiet now. What if he's looking around? I know what you'd probably be thinking, don't look at him, don't look at him. If he looks at me, he might call me up there. 
What's interesting is that Mark is the uh, only time in Scripture where it says that Jesus explicitly was angry. There's times when he turned over the tables in the temple, but this time explicitly it says that Jesus looked and was angry. Evidently, Peter remembered Jesus' looks around the room and communicated these things to Mark as significant indications of his looking for the proper response from the people. Can I just stop and ask, have you ever thought about what Jesus' face might have looked like if it was angry? Or even worse, what it would have felt like? When I was younger... And sometimes even with Penny, my wife, I remember getting one of those looks. Y'all remember those looks? Thanks, Jim. That look from your mom or your dad, your grandma, like you knew. Playtime's over. Jesus was looking around at them with anger. Now, in this case, of course, it is a righteous anger. And the Greek indicates that the anger was over, overridden by the grief that he had because of the conditions of their heart. It says that he grieved at the hardness of their heart. It was the overriding emotion. He wasn't being motivated by anger. It was being motivated by grief of their hardness of heart. Jesus saw something deeper than the man's withered hand. So now it's obvious that Jesus is not intimidated by the Pharisees or the Sanhedrin or the people there. He calls this man out to make it a public event. And Jesus orders the man to stretch out his hand. And he does so. And he restores it. Full strength return. The flesh filled out to normal size. The wrinkles disappeared. He stretched forth his hand obediently. He felt what he hadn't felt in that hand in a long time. Life and strength. He watched in awe as his hand began to fill out and be restored. And with a word of power, Jesus had healed the man. But as in almost every miracle account of healing, the hand was not the issue. It wasn't the major point. There's a deeper miracle. So what was the Pharisees going to do? To Jesus, the most important thing in the world was not the correct performance of the ritual on the Sabbath, but the spontaneous answer to the cry of human need. What's interesting is that since Jesus did not use anything or actually do anything, but his word alone was what healed the man, the Pharisees couldn't really charge him with anything because he didn't perform anything. But Jesus knew. He knew it then and he knows it now. It's always right to do good, and if we do not do good, we do evil. James 4, 17. And here's the overall point of Jesus' response. Jesus knew what his critics were thinking and was angry and grieving over their hardening of hearts by their lack of compassion for this withered man's hand. His desire was to restore 
and it's the same for us today. So what were the Pharisees going to do? The Pharisees were embarrassed and resentful. Look at verse 2 again. They were watching to see him, if he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And verse 6 says, The Pharisees went out and immediately began to conspire with the Herodians against him as how they might destroy him. Luke accounts, Luke's account of this in chapter 6 says that not only were they uh, um, looking to accuse him, but they were filled with fury and anger. I want us to get into the heads just for a second of that fury and anger. This guy's hand was just healed. How could they be so furious and angry that a guy's hand was healed? As we saw before, they were watching. This word watching is not only to observe, but to observe with intent, to respond. I'm going to catch you, I'm spying. It was the Sabbath. As we said, they've obviously come to the synagogue for the wrong motives. They came to bring charges and trap. And it shows two fundamental differences between religions. The first one is the Pharisees' religion was ritual. It meant obeying certain rules and regulations. It meant conforming to the outside. One author said it like this, It is like the man who believes that religion consists... And going to church, reading the Bible, saying grace at meals, having family worship, and carrying out all the external acts which are looked on as religious, and yet who never put himself out to do anything for anyone who has no sense of sympathy, no desire for sacrifice, who is peaceful in his rigid orthodoxy, and deaf to the call of the need to the blind, and blind to the tears of the world. It's all about what I can do to perform to keep every, all this stuff up. To Jesus, religion was service. It was love of God and love of man. Ritual was irrelevant compared with love in action. And you see these two different views. And the Pharisees went out to immediately began to conspire because they were furious and they discussed with one another what they are going to do with Jesus. What's interesting is that they said they're going to go talk to the Herodians. Now, if you remember, the Herodians were the ones who beheaded John the Baptist. And they had nothing in common except Jesus and trying to get rid of him. Jesus was a threat to both the political and religious powers. It's amazing contradiction that the Pharisees were malicious in their hearts and minds and trying to catch Jesus do something wrong, yet in their hearts they were also trying to contrive and put together a plan to kill Jesus. They couldn't see the speck in another's eye because they had a log in their own. Mark chapter 3 verse 6 is kind of the climax of Jesus' life and ministry because it was from this point on that they began to plot seriously on how they were going to crucify and get rid of Jesus. What amazes me is this. The Pharisees the Pharisees had become so distracted from their real purpose. The Pharisees were faced with the most convincing arguments and actions about Jesus' deity, and the Pharisees chose to reject it. Why? They were too busy defending their place in the synagogue. They were constantly afraid Jesus might have more to say than they would 
and which in turn would steal their authority, their popularity, and their attention. They missed it because they were too busy arguing over trivial doctrinal points and asking the wrong questions. They were too busy accusing other people. They had stopped working with God and started working against God rather than honestly evaluating his claims. Most of the Pharisees looked for an opportunity to discredit him and not believe. I want to close with a few questions. The first question is this. What areas of your life has withered and is in need of restoring? The first necessity for anyone who would be saved and restored is to clearly see and deeply feel their need and helplessness. That you can't heal yourself. For too long, you and I have been skilled at disguising our need or denying the withered areas of our lives. Making sure that the outside looks good, but knowing on the inside that there are areas that look really withered and feel really withered. It's time maybe to get honest with God and let him know that there's withered things in my life, God. Relationships, children, spouse, a sense of what's doing right. Only you and God know what areas are withered. And so the second question becomes, will you allow Jesus to respond and restore you? It's one thing to agree that, yes, these are withered areas. It's another thing to allow God to restore. Jesus told the man with the withered hand, Come forward. What if he's like, nah, I'm good. I'm good, I'm going to stay right here in my seat. There's an invitation from Jesus this morning to come forward and let him restore those areas that are withered. One of the things, I shared this with the guys on Thursday night, one of the things I'm learning in my life that I'm so grateful for is the graciousness of God and the gentleness of God and the compassion of God. God is not going to invite you to him to rebuke and to be, be hard on you. He calls this withered man, uh, this man with the withered hand up and says, stretch out your hand. No condemnation. But here's the truth. Jesus won't take a need from you. I have to hand it over to him. So will you allow Jesus to respond and restore you? Jesus is still restoring withered and weakened things. Some of may be thinking, well, there's no way. I've got so much stuff back there. Uh, listen to this encouraging verse from Joel chapter 2, 25. Then I will make up for the years that I, the swarming locusts have eaten. That's a promise from God. Restoring means to resurrect that which was too far gone. Restoring means to make as good as it's ever been, not just improve. Restoring means to completely renew. Not 98% restoration, but 100% restoration. Finally, the last question is this. Will you and I pray against distractions from our real purpose and be with Jesus in what he came to do? Sadly enough, the Pharisees can sometimes be a mirror for me. 
Like the Pharisees, I too have been given convincing arguments of the goodness and faithfulness of Jesus and yet choose to go in a different direction. Maybe for some of the same reasons. Well, this is going to take something away from me. I'm going to have to give up something. There was a Dutch theologian and scholar, Desiridius Erasmus, and he wrote this prayer. It talks about the radical abandonment of self-fulfillment and pride to a total dependence on Jesus. And maybe it can be our prayer as well. It says this, Sever me from myself that I may be grateful to you. May May I perish to myself that I may be safe with you. May I die to myself that I might live with you. May I wither to myself that I may blossom in you. May I be emptied of myself that I may abound in you. May I be nothing to myself that I may be all to you. The cross of Jesus screams that he can restore. This morning we're going to partake of communion. As you can tell, Seth and the team is going to come and play and get us ready. I wanted to remind